The show is here. Yo, our mission is clear. It's time to change healthcare. Have no fear. Today is the day. This is the hour. Together, you know we've got the power. Drop the silos. We're all the same team. Patients, docs, nurses, tech, and marketing. How can anyone be satisfied with the way things have always been? Yeah, we've tried. So join us now. Join the revolution. Digital health is the evolution. Status quo, more like status, no. Yeah, this is the healthcare rap. Y'all come on, let's go. Welcome to the healthcare rap, where we are ushering in the future of healthcare and the status quo no longer exists where we are challenging assumptions about marketing and technology, and we check yesterday's thinking at the door. Where truth drops like an atom bomb, and knowledge flows like Niagara Falls. Each week we challenge assumptions that have been holding back healthcare marketing, and explain how we can do better. Join us. This is the Healthcare Wrap. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jared Johnson, ready to share some more provocative thinking for healthcare innovators. Here on the Healthcare Wrap, we believe that healthcare has to truly become consumer first, and we're trying to do something about it. We can either stand back and let it take another 50 years, or we can jump in right now. Come be a part of it. Each week, we talk about building the healthcare of tomorrow. We recently passed 180 episodes and three and a half years on the air. We're now in season six, where we're focusing on how to operationalize and scale consumer-first healthcare and digging into the details of how to make it happen. So here's what's going to go down today. We have the flavor of the week about how trying to change healthcare is hard. The scale of the task can make us feel discouraged at times. So is it worth it? I'll talk about that. Then Dr. Roxy Mooney is in the house to share some provocative thinking about how to keep healthcare consumers in focus while bringing innovations to market. We'll dive deep into co-creation, the need for early adoption, and marketing and branding's role in the process. This episode's jam-packed, and we have a lot to share along the way. It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the week. Can I be real with you for a moment? I'd like to publicly acknowledge something that a lot of us may be feeling on any given day. And if you're like me, you've been feeling it a lot more lately. And that feeling is that trying to change healthcare is hard. Boiling the ocean is not for the faint of heart. And that's exactly what this is. And it feels at times like an impossible task. Trying to iterate something of the magnitude of the U.S. healthcare system requires a scale of time, money, and resources that may be unrivaled in any other business sector as far as I'm concerned. That doesn't mean that there's no place for pragmatic optimism, but I think it's worth breaking down some of the things that make it so hard. Here are a few on my list. First, the naysayers. Now, of everything on this list, these are ultimately the easiest to ignore. But the fact is, it seems like there's always an armchair quarterback ready to share an unsolicited opinion on why your thought, your plan, or your idea won't work. Second, the inertia, especially of the incumbents and market leaders. Face it, they're making so much money with the old system that they're incentivized to keep things the way they are. Third, the silos. The lack of consensus on what is the right solution can be very discouraging, and the general lack of sharing across disciplines and types of organizations is surely one of the biggest limitations of making progress. Fourth, the pace of change. Change used to be fun, but lately there's so much uncertainty that it's hard to know which direction to focus on, because there's an eerie feeling that it'll change at any moment. It feels almost like we're all on a giant dance floor hooked arm in arm trying to do the cotton-eyed Joe blindfolded. And is it just me, or is that one of the world's oddest songs? Two steps forward, no wait, step backward, and kick. 
Usually this is the point where I offer a few quick takes, starter ideas, or first steps that you can bring back and start acting on in your day-to-day jobs. But I admit, I don't have answers for how to make this work easier. For me, acknowledging the challenge of the task has been essential to moving forward and putting me in the right frame of mind to be open to what comes next. So no, I don't have pithy answers this time, but what I have, and what I believe you have, is a desire to keep figuring this out together. One idea, one conversation, and one collaboration at a time. Yes, trying to change healthcare is hard, but it's worth it. Having the resolve to fight through the uncertainties is another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the Week. I'm so excited to have our guest this week. I've got Dr. Roxy Mooney in the house. Roxy is the CEO and healthcare commercialization strategist at Legacy DNA. So many of you know her and you know the show that she puts out there and has been doing for three years, people, uh, the Health Innovators podcast and video show. You've got to check it out. The insights that she brings on, the guests that she brings on are second to none. Uh, you got to check it out for how much you learn there. Roxy, welcome to the Healthcare Wrap. Yes, thank you for having me here, Jared. Looking forward to this conversation. You know, when you and I were just doing our little pre-show prep and we were counting the ways that we've somehow should have run into each other, bumped into each other over the years with how many ways we, you know, our, our lives kind of intersect in the circles that we run in. And somehow we still haven't met in person, but this is a close second. It's great to connect with you on the podcast. Yes, it is. It definitely is. <laughs> now you're calling from Orlando, Florida, you said. So how's the weather out there these days? Well, it's still hot and it's probably going to be hot until probably December. <laughs> but I don't mind it one bit. So just another year, right? Like it, not, right. Not, <laughs> not too much different than normal. Nope. Just the same four seasons in Florida all year long. Hot, hot, hot and hot. <laughs> Fantastic. It's uh, so good to connect this way because I think what we're going to end up doing is going in a couple of directions. I know where our starting point is going to be here, but quite frankly, I don't know where our ending point is going to be in our conversation. And I'm excited for that because the insights that you've gained all along the way, there's something to be said about those who have been able to keep a show going for as long as you have. And I don't know if you find the same thing, you know, I'm kind of talking, you know, podcast podcasting shop here for a moment here, but I kind of can't help it in terms of what I see with myself and a couple of other hosts that I keep in good touch with is that it's been the best form of professional education for me and for keeping up with new ideas because we are not in a field that stays stagnant. Everything changes, it seems, several times a day or a week. And to be able to keep up, it's meant the world to me to be able to bring on guests who change my worldview, who teach me something new because I'm not talking to the same type of person from the same type of organization in the same role every time. It's something very different every time. And for me, it's been the best way for me to learn and grow. I don't know, is, is that something that you experienced there with your show as well? I'm just curious, you know, how, how you have found kind of the ability to keep going with it after all these years. Yeah. You know, for one, I just make it part of my schedule. And so it's, it's not really an option. I'm recording every week, just like I would any other meeting that's on my calendar. And and you're right, Jared. I mean, it has been an incredible experience. I don't know that I really thought that I was going to get 
as much out of it as I am. But every episode that I record, I am learning something new from that guest. And so it's a beautiful thing. And really the way I describe it, it's it's almost like this trifecta on steroids. It's continuous market research, right? Where you're doing this qualitative research on a weekly basis. It's content marketing. And you know if you do it well and you do it right, it can also be your uh, sales pipeline development. So you, know, you kind of get to a accomplish a lot of business goals and one with just being able to, you know, host and produce a, a podcast show. Well, and it's a lot of fun, isn't it? You know, a when lot. it comes down to it. Yes, <laughs> it is a lot of fun. And, you know, when you've been doing it, as long as I have, you know, you can kind of look back in hindsight and you start to see a lot of patterns in the conversation. So, you know, not surprisingly, I've noticed that the guests that I have that are coming out of Silicon Valley look very different than the guests that I have that are coming out of like, let's say, for example, the Northeast area. There are certain things that those innovators tend to bring to the table. There are certain gaps, knowledge gaps that each one of them have. And things that they're missing and things that could help them and serve them in a different way. So I think that's the other thing too, when you're thinking about it from like a qualitative research standpoint, that you get to see these patterns in the conversations that become really, really meaningful insights for both the community that we serve as as well as, you know, for ourselves professionally. Oh, that's fantastic. I love this. There's such a value in the observations that we find as we do have conversations with others in the industry. And I I do think it's, it's downplayed for those who haven't taking a shot at it themselves. But at the very least, we've got people listening who who do host their own podcasts or have thought about it themselves. And hopefully, you know, they they see some value to it right there just from your experience. One other thing that I find fascinating about your background, Roxy, is that the gap that you saw years ago when first even getting legacy DNA going, but the gap in commercializing all the new tech that we were talking about at that time within healthcare. So it wasn't as easy as understand the tech and now people are going to adopt it. Like there was a process of commercializing things. Can you think back to what that gap was like and what drove you to kind of address that or see the need for helping people through that? Like what were you seeing then that led you to do the work that you're doing now? So when I first started Legacy DNA, we started off as a healthcare marketing agency. And that gap, I think, was one of my soapboxes, which was really around like branding and messaging. You know, if you think back to healthcare brands, even 11 years ago, they were traditionally really boring. And it was, you were hard pressed to not see a healthcare brand that was a black and blue logo, maybe mixing it up with adding some gray in their color palette. And so I really saw a incredible opportunity to bring some of those branding, messaging, and you know, traditional healthcare marketing practices to the industry that had historically or does historically be behind many other verticals in the industry. And so that was kind of the first gap and the first place that I saw that we would be able to, you know, serve healthcare. Later on, after I went back to school to get my doctorate in business, I came across the statistic that 95% of innovations that are brought to market fail to reach any adequate level of financial ROI or uh, customer adoption. 
And honestly, that just really struck me because all the work that we're all doing in the healthcare ecosystem to try to fix the system and, and kind of transform healthcare for everyone, we're not going to be successful in doing that if only 5% of the innovations that are bringing to market actually get into the hands of the people that need them. And so I wanted to become an expert around commercialization and fill the need on that gap so more innovations could get into the hands of every person that needed it. And so I'm hoping that since then we've made progress as an industry. I'm hoping that that you're seeing while there are other challenges that you're helping people through that we have overall made progress as an industry closing that gap a little bit. What what have you observed? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we're the structure is changing. So we're competing at different levels. And so because we're competing in a normal business way, like other industries, that is definitely motivating organizations to kind of rise up and to invest in their marketing and business practices in a way that maybe they could just overlook before. And so we've definitely have transformed in a, a, in a lot of ways from a branding and messaging standpoint. I mean, I still think that there's a lot of way to go. It's still very common to kind of hear someone tell you the story about their company and what they do and you know listen to their 20-minute spiel and still not really be clear exactly what they do do or how they make the world a better place. Or, you know, if I have to hear one more brand that's talking about clinical outcomes, financial outcomes, you know, it's just kind of like blah, 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 and saying the same old thing. So I think we've made tons of progress, but I still think that there are some opportunities for us to kind of do better and get better. And that's why people like you are here. (laughs) Right. All right. Hi, this is John Lynn from the Healthcare IT Today podcast. If you like the latest rumors, insights, and happenings in healthcare IT, you'll enjoy hearing my colleague Colin Hung and myself debate and share the latest happenings from the world of healthcare IT. Find the latest episodes or dig into our archive at healthcareittoday.com or search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcast application or YouTube. When it comes to healthcare technology, we love this stuff. And we can't wait to have you join in on the discussion of everything health IT. Hey, this is Scott Burgess from Healthcare 360, the fair and balanced healthcare podcast, exploring everything you wish you knew about healthcare, but don't. Join us weekly in an open, transparent conversation with some of the biggest names in the healthcare business, surrounding this one question and one question only. Had you known there were other options to exhaust and explore before you traveled down the traditional healthcare route, how would you weigh those options against what you think healthcare and medicine really is? For more information about Healthcare 360 and how together we can help transform lives, visit scotteburgess.com, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us anywhere you enjoy listening. See you there. I'm glad to see that you, you've seen the gap closing and, and I have as well. I admit, you know, I, I see other challenges, like I've said, that have come up, but I think we are weathering a different type of storm than we were back then. And uh, yep. it goes, it credits the, the work that you've done since then in terms of helping any innovator who's got this idea, get past the initial 
stage of adoption and a feedback loop and understanding how to iterate your product. I think all that comes back to this, this thought of th- there's a fallacy out there and I'm guessing it's still part of the education and services that, that you provide in terms of helping educate the innovator, help them understand this fallacy that yes, you may have come up with a better way of doing something, a better way to provide care, a digital health solution, something that is ideally better or easier for a patient and or provider, but that doesn't mean that they're going to adopt it or that it's going to be adopted quickly. So this notion of there's a a phase where you have to get through really slow adoption and you're going to need to know what to do with that. And if you can get it through that, then you're going to be better than that 95% who don't make it to a critical mass of success with, with their organization or with their idea. Can you talk us through a little bit of that in terms of how do you get through the fact that adoption may not come as quickly as you want it to in the early stage? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of reasons for that challenge as we're bringing innovations to market. So research shows that the number one reason why innovators fail is because there's no market need for their solution. So I think the first thing to kind of talk about here is the bias that we have and the assumptions that we make about what problems are worth solving and who's going to pay for that. So a lot of times, you know, we'll see that, you know, even in myself included, is that, you know, we're as innovators, we're maybe even experiencing the problem firsthand, or we're aware of a problem that's happening. And we decide that we're going to come up with an innovation to solve that problem, build an entire business model around it or business around it, only to find that nobody actually wants it. And so making sure that we validate that market demand early on in that innovation process, I think is really critical. I think it will save us millions of dollars, lots of wasted time and uh, a lot of heartache. So that's kind of the number one thing. You know, you probably have heard me talk about this before, but I'm a huge advocate of co-creation. And I feel really strongly that uh, there's, there's three stages or three steps, if you will, when you're bringing an innovation to market that I think can kind of be rolled together to kind of kill a lot of birds with one stone, if you will. So we've got co-creation. You know, we know that we have to, in healthcare, we need to pilot our innovations, and then we need to build these early adoption strategies. And there's a way for us to tether together all three of those strategies in one. So if we think about it, the stakeholders that we want to use or we want to buy and pay for the innovation, we can co-create with them. And what I mean by that is kind of giving them an an equal seat at the table. And we're ideating together on the problems that are happening in the marketplace. And we're ideating together on how they could be solved. And you're you're really staying close to that customer throughout the entire co-creation phase. And I can go into that a little bit deeper if you think that would be helpful to your audience. But there's a way for us to be able to, the stakeholders that we invite to be part of that co-creation process, we also invite to be our first pilot partners and also to be our paying customers. And so that way we can go from co-creation to adoption with the same group or people from the same group. And that will help us get to adoption much faster. Yeah, let's unpack that a little bit. So this thought of co-creation and how you can leverage that not just to impact the 
design of the product or service, but to ultimately, it sounds like leverage the relationships that you've created through co-creation. Mm-hmm. What, what do innovators need to know about the co-creation process? Well, this is going to sound really snarky, but I think like the first thing I say is, you know, your opinion, although interesting, is irrelevant. And what I mean by that is, and I didn't make that quote up, it came from a book that I read many years ago, and I just really loved it. I've, I've, you know, put it in my toolbox. But, you know, the idea is just that just because I think that the problem is worth solving doesn't mean that it is. Just because I think that it's worth solving in this particular way doesn't mean that it is. And so being able to have patients, have providers, have payers, have all partners, all different vendors and stakeholders, everybody that's in the value chain, kind of co-creating this solution is really the best way for us to make sure that we are building something that the market wants and that the market will pay for. And it's interesting. A lot of times folks will think that it's really complicated to actually get people to say yes and participate in this type of initiative. But what I found is that people are more eager to contribute and tell you what they think about this, that, and the other much more than we realize. And so when you're involving customers in that process, it's just going to be a game changer for the company. I mean, that's the one of the key steps that you'll take to being part of that 5% that succeeds. I see. So I think there's a difference if I'm understanding it correctly, there's a difference between co-creation and getting some feedback once you've designed the entire thing and you're like ready to go to market and you're like, Hey, we're going to launch this thing no matter what, but we better check the box. We've asked a few people, you know, to (laughs) fill out a survey, you know, or test it or whatever. Uh, it sounds like this, this is by definition, you are co-creating, you are involving them in the development of the solution itself. Uh, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, then you make a valid point. So there's a lot of confirmation bias that's usually woven into the product management, product development process. And so sometimes we like to think that, you know, we're going to apply human-centered design or design thinking, and we build an MVP and we reach out to our customers and we say, hey, you like it, right? And of course, nobody really wants to tell us our baby is ugly. So they go, yeah, it's great. And we go, okay, validation. There we go. And we launch it into the marketplace only to find that we are getting very little adoption and really struggling to figure out why. And it's because that confirmation bias was woven into that product development process. So co-creation can be a pathway to being able to weave out that bias that we have and really seeking out to learn something new, more so than validating what we already believe to be true. So I'm having a conversation with patients and clinicians because I want to learn something that I don't know about the job they're trying to do, about what they're trying to accomplish, about what it's like to a day in the life of this person, which is, I think, a very different approach than what we just described earlier, which was, I have something, I like it, don't you like it too? For sure, for sure. And I can tell you from personal experience, when I've been involved in a project that was a 16-month build on a tech platform that... We did come near the end. That ship was coming into harbor. You know, we were <laughs> we were getting ready to to dock that boat to to pull up on the shore. And the testing phase was interesting to me because, despite the questions themselves, I think being pretty solid, there there was some basic user testing. 
help us find, find this thing, complete this task. There still was an element of confirmation bias involved in terms of we have a date that this thing's going live no matter what. And this will help us maybe in the future, but you did not help us co-design this thing by any means. And so I had that example in mind in terms of this is very real. And the ironic thing about that project was that the marketing team was then asked, yeah, go sell everybody on this thing. Go get everyone to, to adopt this. Go get everyone to be excited about this. And we ourselves could only be so excited about it. Despite <laughs> all our best efforts to, to get feedback along the way, there was also an element of some people just didn't know how to provide feedback until it was basically done. And so I think that just made the marketing team's role harder. That kind of comes back to this thought of why isn't this thing being adopted as quickly as we expected it to be? Because it's solving all these problems and it's a better solution. It's a better mousetrap. This is the classic, you know, part of of this fallacy of that. That doesn't mean adoption is going to happen quickly. Well, and you bring up a really good point because if we are just inviting patients as users to the table to go, hey, should this button be blue or green? Or should this page come first before this panel? You know, that kind of user experience, user interface testing and co-design with patients. You know, we're already so committed to that vision for the product and so financially invested in that is that even if those target customers or users tell us, well, you know, it really doesn't matter what color the button is or where the button is, I don't even know why you're building this thing, this thing to, you know, for, to begin with, that's really way too late for us to find that out. We want to know from the idea phase, whether something is going to be viable or not before we're, you know, 16 months into it. Now we're actually marketing it, you know, and trying to build awareness and demand for something that nobody really ever wanted to begin with. It is. It's so true. And I, I love that. So what this kind of tells me is, Thinking about getting feedback as a check the box mentality is very different than co-creation. And I think this is this is just one of the, the important pieces and, and little nuances in terms of why isn't this product that we brought to market getting adopted? And so that's great to, to have a to have that part of this conversation. And hopefully we keep hearing that. Is there one common tip that you give the most to innovators in terms of helping them find their path to profitability? Well, certainly co-creation is a big one. I would say the other one is early adoption. So as we're thinking about building those go-to-market strategies and plans, a lot of times innovators will have the intention of building one go-to-market plan. And all of the research that I've done and the work that I've done, just kind of being in the trenches, really demonstrates that every innovator needs to have two go-to-market plans. You need to have an early adoption launch plan and then a mainstream market launch plan. And obviously you don't need the, both of those at the same time, but when you're building out your first go-to-market plan that's specifically targeting early adopters, your message, your targeting strategy, maybe even your brand strategy, your product configuration, a lot of things are going to be very different for that early market conversion or adoption than, than when you're going out to the mainstream market. And this is you know something that's really important because if not, you will be looking for early customers in the wrong pond 
you'll be fishing for early market customers in the mainstream market pond. And there's this disconnect. And so very often I'll see folks that are wasting a lot of time and money trying to arm twist certain prospects into and over-educating them about the problem to convince them that they have a problem that's worth solving, where there's really nothing that you say and do for that particular target customer that's going to persuade them to buy your innovation or to adopt it, that they are much more in the latter part of that market, that diffusion curve. And so, you know, we're going to be better suited building the plan initially for the early market and penetrating that first 16%. And then once we do that, then we can build the second version of the go-to-market plan that has different goals, different strategies, and different tactics. That's such an important distinction, and I'm glad you brought that up. The book that I've read that is the closest to that, that's helped explain that the most to me is Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. And that was a game changer for me in terms of understanding how different that early adopter audience is versus the mainstream audience. Yeah, I mean, you know, we think that it's like little subtleties that don't make a difference, but really these are major pitfalls that are the reason why we have such a high failure rate. And so if we want to be part of that 5% that succeeds, understanding those strategies that are designed for success, specifically for a radical innovation versus an incremental innovation versus an early market versus the mainstream market, all of those things really make a difference. And so, you know, I like to say that like when we're building our go-to-market plan or launch plan, whatever you want to call it, is that really it shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all. It should be designed for the type of innovation that you have and the target audience that you're pursuing. Oh, another great distinction there. And I'm glad you brought that up. So I've got one final question for you, Roxy. And this is because the, the theme of this season for us is how do we operationalize consumer first health, which means anyone who's involved in creating a consumer first healthcare product, a service line or an experience. We're offering whatever we can to innovators in in that position, innovators who are in that line of work. So if you have one message to share with a healthcare innovator about creating a consumer first healthcare product or service, what would it be? I would say, well, for one, you know, as we're talking about healthcare, is to think of those patients as consumers, right? And it not be, oh, well, they're not patients, they're people, but that this is true to how we believe. And we're really starting to think about the patient as a consumer. And we're thinking about the entire health experience or the entire just holistic experience of a person's life. And so as we're thinking about consumer first, we're not just thinking about them as a patient. We're not just thinking about them as those visits to different healthcare entities, but we're paying attention to what happens in between. And I think data plays a critical component in all of the work that we do around marketing and commercialization. And as we start to think of that person looking at their consumer behavior data that's paired with the wellness data that's our health data or sickness data. And we're kind of just looking at it as more of a holistic person instead of the person came to the hospital, this person came to the clinic and having those experiences siloed. I think that when we look at it, we'll be able to design better solutions, better experiences, because we'll better understand the world that each one of those persons 
are living in and be able to meet their needs in a completely different way. Uh, Roxy, thanks for giving us a few minutes and sharing so much value with us. I mean, I'm so glad we got to do this. Me too, Jared. It's been fun. What's the best way for listeners to connect with you and, and with the work you're doing? Sure. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there, Dr. Roxy Mooney. And um, you can also email me at roxie at legacy-dna.com. Fantastic. And the podcast is The Health Innovators Show. So check that out, people. And uh, Roxy, stay safe, stay well. Can't wait to keep up with you. And hopefully one of these days, it will happen in person. Yes, soon, Jared, soon. Ed Marks here with Digital Voices, the only podcast for chief digital officers across all of healthcare and life sciences. Digital Voices is about the voice of the patient, the provider, the payer, pharma, big tech, retail, public health, really any part of the healthcare and life sciences ecosystem That's the digital voice we want to capture as we learn and break barriers across the entire spectrum. Join us weekly as we drop our pod. Hey, thanks again for listening. We hope you found some value in this conversation. And if you did, do us a favor and follow us using your favorite podcast app. Then tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Healthcare App is a member of the Shift.Health Content Network. If you enjoyed this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in the Shift.Health Content Network. Go check out the latest show. In fact, it's called Hello Healthcare, hosted by Chris Hemphill. It's focused on people who are moving healthcare forward, how healthcare strategy relates to data and AI, and what you can do to create or demand a better future. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform or at Shift.Health, where all 35 podcasts and video series are free and available on demand. Until next time, keep marketing forward. Thanks. And that's a wrap.